The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in, uh, that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This series, The Seven Letters, which we begin uh, this weekend, is part of that larger discussion and thought journey that the leadership team wants you to have. And so let me say a few words about uh, the background of this entire series. We're going to be in the book of Revelation, chapters 1 to 3, through the end of September up to the 1st of October. So let me lay a little bit of groundwork and have some introductory words just about the book of Revelation so that we can understand these first three chapters. Um, the, set, the, the title of the series, Seven Letters, reflects something that you just read, we read in, in chapter one, the seven lampstands. And as you get into chapters two and three, there are seven messages or seven letters that God gives to these seven churches. Now what's going on contextually is that the author of the book of Revelation is the apostle John, the, the apostle that Jesus loved. Uh, the book was probably written somewhere around 95 AD. 
The church is going through a time of persecution. These churches are going through trials and tribulation, deep trials and tribulation. John is the last of the apostles. You know, Peter and James and Paul, they've been dead for 30 years. And he's the grandfather of the church now, highly respected. And as part of this persecution, apparently what has happened, you know, the Roman Empire did, typically did one of two things to movement leaders. They either killed them you know, in some gruesome way, or oftentimes, and smartly so, rather than make a martyr out of a movement leader, which would then you know, cause the movement to get even more energy, they would take a movement leader and they would exile them. And this is apparently what they did to John. They may or may not have tried to, to kill him first. Some of church tradition says they first boiled him in hot oil to execute him, and he didn't die. And they said, well, that didn't work, so let's send him into exile. Um, but at the very least, they were trying to marginalize him and his influence on the church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so they exile him to the island of Patmos, which is about 37 miles off the island or off the mainland. It, it, even to this day, hardly anybody wants to go to Patmos. There's about 3,000 people who live there. It's a very unattractive place to be exiled to. And John is there. He's all by himself. And he's on the Lord's Day, Sunday, right? The church had shifted from worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday, the Lord's Day, with all that came with that, just making that radical move within the culture. And he's by himself, and he receives this vision, a letter to these the seven churches. Now listen, there's more than seven churches in this region of the world that he's addressing, there's multiple, many several. We know this from the book of Acts. And so we, we should understand that the letter to the seven churches is like many of the things in the book of Revelation. It has a deeper meaning because it's apocalyptic in, in its genre of, of literature. The book of Revelation, like the book of Daniel, is totally different in its style of writing. And numbers have different, oftentimes different and deeper significance. And so that number seven is important. It's the idea of completeness and wholeness. And so he's writing the letters to these churches, but it's for the entire group of churches. And it would have been circulated to all these churches in Asia Minor. And through the years, people have taken these letters and they've interpreted it in different ways. One of the more common uh, interpretations through the centuries has been to take these seven churches and try to, in some allegorical way, apply them to eras of time. Like the church of Ephesus, you know, it covers the overall church from the period of the, its founding to, say, 100 AD. And then, you know, the church at Thyatira from this century to that. And of course, it always ends, the sermon always ends with the fact that, you know, we're the church of Laodicea, right? The, the lukewarm church. You know, and uh, you know, what happens if the church continues for another thousand years? Well, I guess we've been lukewarm for a thousand years. That's the problem with that view. Uh, you know, the better understanding is that these seven churches are representative of churches that have always existed in the kingdom of God. Um, and at any given time, any individual church can be all seven of these churches. In fact, I would contend that it's possible that one single church can can have all the characteristics of these seven churches in its life cycle and depending upon the circumstances. Um, so we're gonna look at these churches. We're not gonna look at all seven of them. There's not, last time I checked, there's not seven weeks in the month of September. 
Um, and uh, so we have this week, and then we have four weeks in the month of September. So we're going we're gonna to pick out four that help us carry out the idea of the vision. Because you see, what, we, what we're going to learn in these churches is that they were facing real problems. They had real issues and real problems within their church. They had real problems in their community that were confronting them. And with those problems and issues that were within their church or outside of their church, there were also real opportunities. And so we want to see what God said about those problems and opportunities and apply what Jesus said about them to our own context. You know, what, what if Jesus were to write a letter to us about the church at Palm Bay or at Covenant Church at Palm Bay? What, what problems might he want to address? Or what opportunities would he say are before us that we need to be focusing on so that the kingdom could be expanded and he could be glorified? You see, folks, any, every vision, every vision that is worth its salt addresses problems, issues in the current situation. And it takes advantage of opportunities that are, that are right in front of us in order to bring about a better future. And clearly that's what we have. We have problems and issues in our community that are huge. We have opportunities in our church through our giftedness and through the passions of our church that can meet opportunities that are in our community that that will bring about a better future for not only this church, but more importantly, for our community and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what vision is all about, a better future. And so this, what Jesus does here and how it's applied, it's, it's really important. Now, the fact that we're going to the book of Revelation for this really gives me the heebie-jeebies. Okay, that's in the Greek. Why? Because the book of Revelation isn't controversial at all. <laughs> no. The fact is, is that the book of Revelation gets people's knickers twisted up like no other book in the Bible, right? I mean, the fact that, you know, every time a community Bible study, male or female Bible study, in our community goes to the book of Revelation, it just gives me heartburn. Okay, because I inevitably end up having problems from the men or women who intend it, right? Because they get confused and the Bible study turns them upside down. And part of the reason why is because the, we don't speak apocalyptic. Do you? Maybe to your kids if you're really angry at them. <laughs> You know, D.A. Carson is, uh, is, to me, our generation's maybe one of our top theologians in our generation. And he has said that, that he, if he had his way, he would not let a seminary student take a class on the book of Revelation until they were required to read not only the book of Daniel, but every apocalyptic book written by the Hebrews in the intertestamental period, and there's several of them, I've read them a couple of times, and get so thoroughly versed in apocalyptic genre so that when they came to the book of Revelation, they would have at least some semblance of understanding what John was doing. You know, the, the best way that I can maybe liken it is that, you know, if I wanted to this morning, for many of you, I could completely confuse you by simply 
dropping the multiple colloquialisms I have in my vocabulary as a southern boy about dogs. You know, dogs don't hunt, scalded dog, three-legged dog. I mean, I could just go on and on. And many of you would just look at me like, what? And the reason why is because you say things like, let's go to get in the car to get a soda, right? And you haven't been fully sanctified by the Holy Spirit yet, and so you don't get those colloquialisms. We're from different parts of the country, right? Well, it's, this is what's going on in the book of Revelation. He is speaking a language of insiders that's much worse than the gap between my southern colloquialisms and those of you who say ka, right? It's much bigger. It's the, it's the language that is spoken by the Hebrews when they were inhabited by an enemy, right? It is, it is veiled language. It's insider language from the people of God. And so what we do in our Western, especially American evangelical life is we come to the book of Revelation in our Bible studies and things like that, and we start coming to these terms and all of these images, and we try to figure out timelines and calendars, and oh, this is about the future and everything that Jesus wants to tell us about when he's coming back and all the events and the tanks and the airplanes and God and Magog and Russia and Armageddon and yada, 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 yada. And, you know, the, the little horn on the 10th infected toe of the 12th beast that extends out of the green slime of the Black Sea. And all of these things we try to figure out, not recognizing that it is apocalyptic language. And that's not the point at all. It's not the point of the book at all. John is writing to real people, brothers and sisters in Christ like you and me, in real local churches like ours, who are going through trials and tribulation and persecution. And he was coming to these brothers in language that they would understand to do one thing, to reveal to them the might and the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they would stand strong in the face of the trial and tribulations that they were facing. To understand that regardless of what their enemy might throw at them, their Savior was mightier than their enemy, and therefore they could overcome. And they're in the midst of of a persecution where to even profess the name of Jesus Christ, you could lose your livelihood, your job, your life. And he puts it in cryptic language intentionally. But this is not given primarily to lay out a, a roadmap of the details of the future and how we should be afraid and build bomb shelters. This is written to encourage Christians to overcome trials and tribulations that they face in their lives, regardless of where they come from, because their Lord and Savior is king of everything. That's the message. And so these opening chapters, they're important 
The vision given to John, it paints in very broad strokes a beautiful picture of Jesus and his church. And the first thing you see is how Jesus radically loves his church. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, and he goes through the, a Trinitarian formula, but he kind of flips it. And it's not the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the Father, Spirit, and Son. In verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. In other words, the ruler of everything in this universe, in this world that we have, is Jesus Christ. And notice the next phrase in verse 5, to him who what? Loves us. And then he begins, and we can see these go the gospel application of Jesus' love in three very practical ways, right? He, he says he's addressed our, the deepest need of every one of us in here this morning. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's our first primary, the deepest need of every human being that's ever walked the planet. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins without hope unless Jesus frees us from our sins. Unless he brings us to life and gives us a new heart, as Ezekiel says, a heart of flesh that is alive and yearning for the things of God. If Jesus does not do this miracle in our lives, we have a heart of stone that is hard and turned against God. But Jesus radically loves us so much that he turns to us and he brings us to life and he gives us a heart actually can say, wow, I am a sinner. Are you able to say that this morning? Are you able to say, I am a sinner before God, and, and I have no hope for eternity unless God is gracious and merciful to me? No hope at all. Can you say that this morning? Or do you say, well, yeah, I, 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 sometimes I mess up, but, you know, I, I'm doing pretty good. If, if, you're, if that's the narrative of your life, begin praying that Jesus would open your eyes and loosen you and free you from your sin. But if you can say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I, I am totally dependent upon God's grace. You have experienced the radical love of Jesus Christ. He goes on and says, he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He not only has he, he addressed our deepest need, he's assigned to us a new identity and a new purpose. We're his kingdom. We talked about this a few moments ago as we read through Ephesians chapter 6. I'm not going to read it to you again, but I'm going to throw it up on the screen. The fact that we are a kingdom means that we are, in some sense, this this. Uh, you know, we're carrying out the orders of our king, and we are his representatives here on earth. And the reality is that there are two kingdoms at war in this world. And the solution here is not political, and it's not physical. The sp solution is spiritual. 
And this is why Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, part of our enemy is that we are in this kingdom, not wrestling against flesh and blood, but we have the spirit of God within us and we have these spiritual weapons to participate in this spiritual war between these kingdoms because we are God's kingdom, the kingdom of light. We are a lampstand giving light that fights back against the kingdom of darkness. And he says we are priests. What's that mean? I love 1 Peter chapter 2. It talks about this in detail. Peter says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why? Not just so we can sit around and pat each other on the back, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of, his, out of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of his marvelous light. We're priests. What did the priests do? The priests, they mediated and they interceded between the sinner, the person who was plagued and broken and affected by sin, and they intervened and they interceded and they mediated between that person and a holy, righteous God. And they helped address the sinful situation so that the person could be reconciled to God. People of God, covenant church, we are his priest. We have been given the ministry of the priesthood the ministry of reconciliation, taking people who are dead in sin, who Jesus begins to bring to life and helping reconcile them to their creator so that they can walk in freedom and power and restoration and addressing that deepest need, their salvation, and ultimately being conformed to the image of their dear Savior, Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is our identity. He's assured us of his love. He's addressed that deepest need and assigned us a new identity. And then following on, he does something else. He assures us of his return in might and glory. We are in a war, but the war's outcome has already been determined. I love verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Folks, Jesus is not some soft little sissy, some little weak-kneed wallflower. Now, the first time, he humiliated himself, he emptied himself, He laid aside the power, the glory, the might that is his by nature as God in the flesh, and he took on human flesh. He took on our sins. He walked the life and lived the life we were to live so that he could die our death and purchase our redemption. The first time he came, he came as a humble, sacrificial lamb. But the lamb of God is coming again, and this time he comes back as a roaring lion conquering all enemies, settling all accounts. And those who oppose him will wail. It's unequivocal language. You know, the book of Revelation, 
where people make a mistake is oftentimes is they try to create all these timelines and charts and you know this means that and everything else. But really, the book of Revelation, what it does is it's a series of visions. And, and all, remember, it's all about revealing Jesus and his power and his glory. And so in these visions that John has, Jesus, his second coming is presented to us from several different perspectives. And so you see him coming in chapter 11, and chapter 14, and chapter 19. He comes multiple times. Now, he's not coming multiple times. It's just different snapshots, portraits of that coming and, and, and whatnot. I love the way it's worded in chapter 6, which is the first time we see it. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You see... Jesus' love is radical, so radical that he has promised that one day every believer who has experienced the persecution, the trial, the tribulations that come from him, he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We don't strike back. We don't defend. We wait for this day when Jesus settles all accounts and he says, no one will be able to stand in front of me. Can you imagine how important it was for these churches who were in the midst of persecution? They, their friends, some of their friends, as we're going to see in some of these churches, had already paid the ultimate price with their lives. How important it was for them to hear from the Apostle John a reminder of how radically and thoroughly loved they were by the Lord Jesus. But folks, we need that same reminder this morning. This same Jesus one day will come. As the book of Revelation points out, he will come in wrath and judgment upon his enemies. And he can do this because he's already taken God's wrath for us. We can find this comforting because he's taken God's wrath for our sins upon his back, and by his stripes we've been healed. And if you have not turned to Jesus Christ, confessed your sin and received him as Lord and Savior, this picture here is your destiny. And my role is to warn you and urge you and exhort you, turn from that future. Turn to Jesus. Confess your deed. Fall on your face before him and receive him as Lord and Savior. You know, John's painting this picture. Now, let me ask you a quick question. Which of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, give us a description of what Jesus looked like? Think about that for a second. Which one? All right, that's enough. All right, you know the answer? None, exactly. None, it was a trick question, sorry. None. None of the Gospels tell us what Jesus looked like. This is the closest thing we have to kind of a portrait of what Jesus looked like. And it's not really a portrait, it's kind of more of an impressionistic painting, 
right? <laughs> um, but it's a beautiful painting that the Apostle John is giving us. And the very first stroke of this painting and this portrait is that he's showing us the radical love that Jesus has for his church. But then he goes on and he shows us secondly in the second stroke that Jesus is fully God and he's worthy of the church's worship. In verses 12 to 16, he uses this language and it's kind of like, wow, that's kind of, whoo, that's, you know, white hair and flaming eyes. And, you know, it almost sounds like he's an Avenger or something. And, you know, one of those characters, well, he's, he's going back to the book of Daniel. This is language right out of the book of Daniel, the scenes in Daniel chapter like uh, eight and 10. And I think it's Daniel chapter five, maybe where the, the ancient of days and the heavenly being who's with the Ancient of Days for all of eternity are interacting with Daniel. And these, this language is from him. This golden sash around the chest is that ancient sign of a king. So this individual that he sees is this kingly, heavenly king who has these qualities of what? God, because the, the portrait that he's pointing, painting here is that to these people who are in persecution, to us who go through our trials and tribulations, that Jesus was not just some great teacher. No, Jesus is fully God, like the Ancient of Days is fully God. And because of this, he's worthy of worship. He says in verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the right response. You see, whenever in the Bible people come into, uh, into the presence of God and the power of God, the person and spirit of God. Look at Moses at the burning bush. Look at Isaiah. Look at the apostles and at the, who were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at the apostle Paul. Look at Peter when he comes into the presence of Jesus after the resurrection. Look at Paul. Look at John here when they come into the presence and they see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's fully man, but fully God, they fall. It's none of this gentle swooning that you see on televangelism, right? Where, you know, they softly fall. No, they fall like dead, like a sack of bricks. Boom! Because you're in the presence of God. But then there's this great sentence. In verse 17, I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. Isn't that awesome? That this almighty God, Jesus, who's, who the right response is yes, fall flat on your face in his presence because of his holiness and his power and his might. Yet his love for his people is so deep that he will come and put his hand upon the shoulder and assure and say, fear not. Fear not. What you're going through this week or next month or next year, what you're going through right now, some of you, that trial and tribulation, you should know 
that your Lord is fully God and he puts his hand upon your shoulder and he says, fear not. I, in verse five, I'm the firstborn of the dead. I'm the ruler of the kings of the earth. I'm in control of everything here in this dimension, but even more, I am the living one. I died, I am alive forevermore. I am eternal, I'm the eternal God, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Not only do I control everything that is in this realm, I am in total control of the devil's realm Everything that is in that realm is completely under my authority. I have it all under control. And I can open the doors to heaven. I can open the doors of a heart that has been hardened, that you've been praying for for years. Fear not. Pray. Plant the seeds. Fear not. I have the keys to his entire domain, and I rule it all. Why? Because I'm God. I'm God. What a beautiful picture. That Jesus radically loves his church, that he's fully God and fully worthy of the church. And don't miss this last one. He says in verse 12, when I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. In verse 20, is for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He's, he's painted this picture of the radical love of Jesus and the full deity of Jesus that we should worship, but he, he ends with a final picture that we shouldn't miss, and that is that Jesus, this eternal God, He's present within his church. He's present walking in the midst of his church. And this is significant, especially in our day where, you know, the church, many are not done. We have a category now in surveys, are you done with church and with the church of Jesus Christ or nuns and duns and all of this? But here's the thing, if you wanna have a relationship with Jesus, if you wanna be with Jesus and walk with Jesus, well, well, Jesus is in the middle of his church. That's where you're gonna find him. So if you wanna follow Jesus and be with Jesus and fellowship with Jesus, it means being a part of his church. And this isn't the nebulous, Universal church, okay? I, when you come to know Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, we're, we're baptized by the Spirit into the universal church. That, that means Abraham is my brother and Paul and Mary are our brothers and sisters. But folks, that's a nebula, that's a spiritual concept. No, John is writing to local churches that are the, the physical manifestation of that universal principle. The books of the New Testament are written to real believers who were part of real, tangible, physical, messed up, ugly at times, broken at times, filled with all kinds of problems, but also all kinds of potential, infuriating, frustrating, and glorifying local churches. That's what it was. 
And Jesus says, I love it. I love my churches. And I, where are you going to find me? Walking in the middle of my churches. That's where I am. You're not going to find me out on the beach on Sunday morning in the middle with a, a seashell up to your ear going, oh, it's not where Jesus is. He's with his local church. You're not going to find Jesus by turning your back on his church. Now, but now listen, I understand. I bet if we went to, throughout America, the survey would be unbelievable, the number, the percentages of people who have been hurt by the church of Jesus Christ. Just recently, Catherine, my wife, had a conversation with someone, and uh, in, in the conversation, she talked about, and she, she's at least my age, maybe older, and uh, had talked about how she hadn't been to church since she was about 13 years old or so. Had gone all through her childhood, but hadn't been back because of an incident at the church where there was deep pain, deep pain, inexcusable pain. And we've even seen it recently in the news, things up in pencil, just horrible things that have been done in the name of the church or in the name of Jesus. And many, listen, I've been a pastor for 35 years. You don't, my scar tissue has scar tissue from the wounds that have happened from God's people in the church. And I too have inflicted wounds upon people in God's church. You see, at best, the wounds that we get within the church are because God isn't done with us. We're, we're projects in, in progress, right? We're sinners. I'm still a sinner. And sometimes I can say things that almost immediately I wish I could take it back, but a, a spoken word is like a spent bullet. The minute it leaves the barrel of a gun, you cannot take it back. The damage is going to be done. The hurt's going to happen. And I've done that as a pastor or just as a church member. I've been guilty of it. So at best, the hurt that we've experienced in God's church is the result of, of the immaturity or the sin that is part of the process of growing up as a follower of Jesus Christ. And we have to give grace to each other because guess what? We need the same kind of grace. We've been wounded and we what? wound. But Catherine turned to that lady and said, you know, the issue is you're assuming that those people who spoke to you were Christians. They may not have been. I mean, Jesus talks about the fact that oftentimes in his church, there's wolves in sheep's clothing. And so folks, this morning, understand you may have been wounded in a church and everything in a church that happens doesn't necessarily honor Jesus but Jesus is constantly evaluating and assessing this imagery of his bronze feet walking among the church is the imagery of someone who's assessing and evaluating and he's judging and he's deciding, do I like what I see or don't like what I see? Do we need to take corrective action? Do I need to encourage? Do I need to chastise? What needs to happen here? But be assured of this. If a church won't listen to the corrective voice of their Lord, he will remove that light from the city. And this is why it's important for us as a church to constantly come back around and evaluate and pray and ask questions, Lord, are we where you want us to be? 
Are we who you want us to be? Are we going the direction you want us to be? Because an unhealthy church will end up warping itself and it's characterized by consumerism and by compromise and ultimately carnality. And God will ultimately, the Lord Jesus will give it time, but ultimately he will remove that lampstand from within that city, shut it down. But a healthy church, it worships Jesus as Lord and it takes on that calling to be his prophets and his priests and his kings in the city and to shine forth the light that the city needs. And we want to be that kind of healthy church. So, Let me ask this of you in response to this. I want to ask you to do three things this morning. First of all, I want to encourage you, wherever you are with our local church, to take the next step in your commitment to engage with our church. Some of you are new. Take the next step. Check us out. We're about to have a membership class in a couple of weeks. Come to it. Find out who we are. And, and, and either like what you see and, and join in with us to do the work of God in your life and through you to our community, or check us off that list and say, nope, not these guys, there's got to be somebody else. And find that church that the Lord wants you connected to and engaging with. Some of you, you've been here for years, and you've already members, but what's your next step? Maybe it's getting into a small group. You've been sitting on the sidelines in that area, or maybe it's giving your time and your gifts to a ministry. Would you at least, at the very least, understanding how much Jesus loves his church, ask yourself, how can I love this church more and better as Jesus loves it? Secondly, I'm going to ask you to keep an open mind. Would you keep an open mind in the weeks and months ahead as we have discussions about vision and mission and, and don't rush to snap judgments and, and, and enter into the conversation joyfully and, and freely and know that you can do that. You can come to me and any of the elders and pastors and deacons and we're happy to answer questions and and guide you as we go through this process. And then finally, would you pray? Would you pray that the Holy Spirit would energize us and give us the vision that we need to best carry out the mission so that the vision that we're talking about over the next 10 years actually happens? I hate vaporware. A lot of you engineers know what I'm talking about, right? You have all these conversations and put all these theoretical plans together and it all ends up being vaporware at the end of the day. I have no patience with vaporware. I want to see God do something awesome through us. Real, practical, that changes lives and changes us. Amen? Amen. Would you pray that His Spirit, because it won't happen without His Spirit, energizing and guiding us covenant Jesus is walking among us this morning. As he walks, the scriptures teach that he watches and he assesses, he speaks and he guides, he corrects, and if necessary, he'll even chastise. But he loves this church. He loves it. It belongs to him. If he were to write a letter to us, what would he say? 
Would it be all negative, like the letter to Laodicea, that we didn't say anything good to? Would it, be a, would it be a mixed message, a mixed assessment, like maybe the church at Ephesus that we're going to look at next week? Or, or would it be that overwhelming positive message that the Philadelphian church received? What do you think? Lord Jesus, when you assess us, May we be more like the Philadelphian church than the Laodicean church. That will only happen through your grace, through your power and mercy. But Lord Jesus, that's who we want to be. We want to be a healthy church that is walking in lockstep with you, with your will and with your plan. Lord Jesus, we don't want to build a monument to ourselves, a church that simply entertains ourselves, Lord we are your disciples. Would you guide us as we, as we look at this mission to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world? Lord Jesus, help us to do what we believe you want us to do. Change this community through us, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for the good of your family here and for those in our community who need you, Jesus. In your name I pray these things. Amen.